Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Channel Live podcast. Mitch Michaels hosting this week. Where it is TC Live at the Australian Open on site in Melbourne, the year's first major a lot of great discussions this week to bring to you in podcast form. Let's get it started with an interview between Brett Haber and the director of the Australian Open, the tournament director, Craig Tiley. He's also the CEO of Tennis Australia. He was the college tennis coach, the men's coach at Illinois for over a decade, won a national championship with them in 2003. Great interview with Craig and Brett Haber as they discuss things related to the Australian Open, such as the new air quality initiative designed to help the players breathe properly after the Unfortunate incidents with the wildfires, how the Rally for Relief raised a ton of money, the exhibition with all the game's top players, all buying in and all helping out for a good cause, and also looking at the ATP Cup, the inaugural ATP Cup that Australia hosted, and if there is plans for a women's edition, a WTA Cup next year, Craig Tiley sits down with Brett Haber on the Tennis Channel Live podcast. We are pleased to welcome in our good friend and our host for these two weeks in Australia, the tournament director of the Australian Open, Craig Tiley. Thanks for having us, and how happy were you yesterday to have made that investment in three roofs at this place? Well, we were, actually, we were more happy to have the rain because we've been <laughs> suffering from droughts oh, and, uh, and also the bushfires. So uh, we, we welcomed the rain, but on top of that, having three roofs, we could close them, and, and the matches we could broadcast around the world were still able to be shown. It's often been said that a, a tournament director wears many hats. Uh, I wonder yeah. if you ever imagined that one of those hats would be of a an air quality management engineer because mm. with the bushfires that you mentioned, that, that has been part of your bailiwick in this tournament. Mm. Talk about the challenge that you, you've been facing just getting players on and making sure that everybody's safe. Well, at the outset, we've said we will never put a player on an unsafe environment, and we're very consistent with that. And But learning very quickly on what cons what rating to use, what's the most consistent rating, PM 2.5 was the one was chosen, most consistent around the world, and then deciding on a threshold, and at what point on that threshold do you make decisions. So that all had to happen leading in. We weren't expecting smoke, but we had two smoke haze days during qualifying. Uh, you made the point to me before we went on that, that there needs to be a distinction made between visibility yep. and air quality which aren't always correlated. Yeah, and that's one of the things we learned. On those two days we had poor visibility. So the perception from the players and everyone was really bad, but the actual air quality when the players went on was fairly low. So and and was was fairly good. So it was it was a very difficult thing for the players to understand and and I think everyone's got their head around it now, 5 days later, but Maybe the new normal for where we put tennis tournaments, what cities we put them in, and how we, uh, we approach the air quality issue. Uh, how gratified were you last Wednesday to see essentially the entire tennis world come out here for the, uh, the rally for relief that you guys organized? Well, it was, it was magnificent. You go to the top players and you ask them, uh, would you spend the time in the evening? We're going to try and raise as much money as we can, which we did, a little over $5 million that night. But it was the tennis community coming together from around the world. Our broadcast partners globally showed the event. It was a lot of fun, and, uh, and I think everyone particularly had a good time, and we raised money for a good cause. 
That is uh, the truth. Um, there's going to be a ceremony next Monday on Australia Day honoring Margaret Court on the occasion of yeah. the 50th anniversary of her calendar year Grand Slam in 1970. It's been well documented, her political views, which are opposed yeah. to LGBTQ uh, rights. And she has said in press as recently yeah. as yesterday that she's not going to curtail her thoughts while she's here this week, her political views, which are controversial. Yeah. I, I wonder if you could sort of characterize in your own words how you plan to thread this needle of honoring her as a tennis champion but maintaining the core mission of Tennis Australia as being an inclusive yeah. organization and yeah. not offending the LGBTQ community of Australia? Well, it's, it, uh, first of all, we've said from the outset that we will recognize what Margaret accomplished back in 1970 when she won all four Grand Slams. Um, and there's a difference between the recognition of that and the celebration of mm -hmm. someone. But we've also made very clear we do not agree with her views. We've made that publicly clear. Uh, we're actually for the third year hosting the Glam Slam, which is an LGBTQ yep. international event, global event, here in front of Margaret Court Arena, where we'll also paint the rainbow flags around the court. And, and just to remind everyone, we are a sport that's open for all. We're a sport that welcomes diversity and inclusivity, equality. And we've made that very clear to Margaret that's our position. And her recognition is for her tennis achievements only. By the way, as you start this Australian Open, you are still sort of in the afterglow of the inaugural ATP Cup, which covered three cities around this country, first 10 days of the season. What's your yeah. takeaway from the inaugural? Well, it was great. It was a magnificent event. I know it was shown around the world. And anytime you get teams together playing for their country, uh, we had in three cities in Perth and Brisbane in the finals in Sydney. Um, we had our biggest broadcast audience leading in, uh, our biggest visitation leading in. So for year one, it was beyond our expectations. And uh, in five seconds, maybe women's event next year? Yes, next year. That's the plan. All right, great stuff with Craig Tiley and Brett Haber. And yes, I'm all in on the WTA Cup in 2021. It will have all the drama that the ATP Cup had and maybe more. And it'll get the players ready for the year's first major in Australia as we're seeing some of the players that did well and bought into the ATP Cup are having great runs here in Melbourne. Next up on the Tennis Channel Live podcast, the topic of discussion is Daniil Medvedev, the number four seed in the men's tournament, has been on a tear. He won Cincinnati last year, was a couple games away from winning the U.S. Open over Rafael Nadal, and he continues to get better and better. Jim Courier, Martina Navratilova, John Wertheim, and Brett Haber discuss what is it about his game that's making Medvedev tick, what he's doing with his second serve, and what all-time great does Medvedev resemble on the tennis court. You're not going to want to miss this. Daniil Medvedev is the topic of discussion on this segment of Tennis Channel Live. I want to start with this, Jim, uh, relating to Medvedev. What is he? And by that, I mean we like to put labels on players. This guy is this kind of – does one label – is that enough for Medvedev? I think of him as a disruptor. I think primarily what he's able to do is to get people out of their comfort zone. You know, he's an awkward-looking player. He doesn't look as fluid as some of the other players around him in the rankings. But, boy, is he incredibly effective and uh, – you know, he's a guy who can play a lot of different styles. He can play a lot of different spins. He can play flat. Um, he can play aggressive defense. It's a really intriguing combination. It'll be fun to see how it develops as players start to sort of try and find patterns to play against him because right now he seems to be difficult to peg down. He's seeded four and obviously had reached the final the previous major. What is the most important thing 
that he needs to do if he's going to crack this this monopoly at the top? I don't think he needs to do much more than to just keep going. I mean, he was just a couple of points away in that fifth set of the U.S. Open to breaking through at a big, big level. So for him, it's managing the new environment. Paul talks a lot about that as a young player. Martina coming into stardom and dealing with everything that that, uh, that brings. How do you think he's doing so far? Well, there's a lot that's coming at you, but bottom line is if you can just concentrate on the court and the ball, then you make simplify things. And what I like about his coach saying nothing's routine. You don't want to get into a routine because then you s become stale. And there's nothing routine about the way he plays. And I just like that philosophy, trying out new things. And he can do it all. Uh, the improvements. Is a great way to put him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, the, the improvements that he's made, he's made have been numerous. You've been tracking some of what he's been doing with his second serve. Yeah, his second serve, points one, really improved a ton last year. He, he was 51% in 2018. He jumped all the way to 55%. That is massive. That's hard to do. And as we look at where he served at last year's Australian Open when he reached the fourth round, compared to his first round here, look at the differential in depth. There's so much more depth to this serve, and there's also more speed coming down the track. So he's developed confidence in his second serve, more aggression. That's going to continue to bode well and take a little pressure off of him. At six foot six, he has a good angle to hit down in the court and be aggressive. Another thing I see there is much more variety on the second serve. Guys become kind of stuck. They just kind of kick it in, but he's moving it around the box as well, so the player is not attacking his second yeah. serve as well because they don't know what's coming. His second serve really changed uh, the course of a tournament last year. He was down against uh, Djokovic in Cincinnati, and he started going for second serve aces mm -hmm. when Novak was kind of dominating him. That flipped that around, and he wins the tournament and runs out to the finals of the Open. So he's unpredictable and yep. getting confident. Yep. Let's take a look at his draw as he tries to break that, uh, as you call it, monopoly. John, what, uh, Pedro Martinez next. That's a, a qualifier from Good pitcher Spain. Too. Vavrinka down the bottom <laughs> section. Yeah, it's uh, a Hall of Famer. Nice yeah. fastball. <laughs> El, El Presidente. Yeah. He, uh, he got into that fourth seeding position early in the year by his play in the ATP Cup. That is really going to benefit him. I mean, you look at that draw, and objectively, he ought to come through. And who's half of the draw is he on? Well, Rafa Nadal, the player who beat him in, in the U.S. Open. So a lot of tennis left to be played. But if you're Medvedev... Uh, we're only in the second round, but you can't complain much about that. Stylistically, I, I'm interested in, in your take on this. He's six foot six, and yet I've heard people say that that he has elements of Djokovic in his mm. game in terms of the way he defends and retrieves and extends points. I, I know at six six you can't move the way Novak moves, but is, is is that a valid thing to say about him? You don't have to move quite as quickly because you have more reach. <laughs> right. You know, true, it's yeah. very difficult to get the ball by this guy. He's not afraid to play deep in the court, also, but he's just he really makes up a lot of ground with the steps that he takes. He's he's sneaky fast out there. Ask Francis Tiafo last year in Washington D.C. Francis thought he won a point, and Great all of a sudden he tracked it down. So no, he is a, a terrific athlete who is deceiving a lot of people. He's uh, kind of ungainly with his hand, but he knows exactly where the racket faces. And yeah. that was a really good reference to Vladimir Trechuk. I'm old enough to remember who he was. <laughs> but yeah, he can ad-lib as well as anybody out there. That is the only Russian goalie I know. So um, <laughs> after that, I'm kind of done. All right, more great discussion from Martina Navratilova, Jim Courier, John Wertheim, and Brett Haber to come in just a moment. But that was very, very essential to understanding why Daniil Medvedev is rising to the top of the rankings and is a threat to win this Grand Slam and more. He doesn't fear anyone, and he has the game, the arsenal, and the mindset to go through the entire draw. Also love that Trediac reference. 1980 Olympic hockey is just always great to reference at any time. So great for Red Haber to do just that.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Now we're going to switch our attention to somebody that also has a lot of potential and is a young player on tour, but hasn't always used it in the right way. That'd be none other than Australian Nick Kyrgios, the top seed, the top seeded Australian in this draw. He has had his ups and downs this year. He's into the third round after a roller coaster or a match with Jill Simone, which saw him kind of go into that dark place, but turn it around. That same crew that gave you that great Medvedev discussion will break down why Kyrgios might be a different player this year, both physically and mentally, and what to expect next from him as he goes forward with catching off next and possibly Rafael Nadal after that. Here's a great discussion on Nick Kyrgios now on the TC Live podcast. So I would ask you guys, uh, is it troublesome that Nick sort of lost the plot halfway through the third set, or is it encouraging that he didn't, as he said to Jim, go to that dark place and, and make it worse. What do you think, Martina? No, absolutely. I mean, he, he, he came close, but he came back, and that's the big thing. I was shaking my head when he's hitting the between the legs because he's looking to hit those. You only hit behind the back or between the legs when you have to. You don't look to hit that, but, you know, he's a showman. I think he'd but take issue with yeah, that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Did Nick Kyrgios beat Simone, or did he beat Nick Kyrgios? Um, one thing he said, also interesting impressed. he said, boy, if this had gone to a fifth set, I don't know what my conditioning would be like. That's a lot of pressure you put on yourself when you're telling yourself in the fourth set, boy, if I lose this one, we're in uh, a bit of hurt here. But a nice recovery from Nick. Strange match, as you say. It looked like he was cruising up two sets and a break, but... He walks off that $20 a seat court a champion. I was watching the match on Australian TV in the hotel last night, and, and Jim did something that I, I thought you would never do in a Kyrgios match. I didn't hear you for a while, and I realized it's because you had left the booth to yeah. go down yeah. for the courtside interview because you thought it was going to be over. Come on, Jim. You know oh. that it's a Kyrgios <laughs> match. Right. Well, it's not like the Rod Laver Arena where we're down on the arena. We're down on court level. We're at the very top got a head there. start. So Thanks a while. I've got to get down the elevator. You need a Sherpa to get oh, down there. Yeah, it's, so it was it's, a false start, and then he had to go back down. <laughs> That's right. Kyrgios... It's always fragile with him. His next match against Hatchinoff, right. that's a match that he got the biggest fine in men's mm-hmm. tennis history in mm-hmm. Cincinnati where he melted right. down simply over the chair umpire starting the clock, the serve clock, too fast in his opinion. So he's he's always riding the rails. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's no safe zone for Nick. He, he, he's not past that stage of his career if he ever will be. And that's kind of what makes him thrilling to watch yep. because you just don't you know what know. you're going to get. Do you see? Sometimes we talk about, oh, so-and-so is box office. The ratings that he is drawing on local TV, that will tell you everything you need to know about his popularity here and elsewhere. But it'll be interesting to see where they put that match. He was playing uh, in Melbourne Arena. Again, $20 a seat tennis. I love it. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how long he stays out there. Yep. All right, big thanks again to Martina Navratilova, Jim Courier, John Wertheim, and Brett Haber for breaking down Nick Kyrgios's recent matches in the Australian Open. If he beats Kachanoff, and he is a prohibitive favorite to do that, he gets probably Rafael Nadal, and that would be a match everyone would be interested in seeing. So we'll see what happens. There's always upsets in tennis. There's no sure thing, especially when dealing with Nick Kyrgios. But if he's got his head on straight, if he's mentally there and, and playing for something bigger than him in, in donating all this money and doing such good work for the uh, wildfire relief in Australia, he's a very dangerous player on the court. So we'll see what happens with Nick Kyrgios as he progresses in the Australian Open. The final segment on the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcasting Network Involves a discussion with last week's guest, 
Jimmy Arias. Jimmy Arias, obviously, we all know, was a top player in the tennis world for over a decade. And he also hosts on Tennis Channel Live. But what you might not know is that he's the IMG Academy Director of Tennis. So Jimmy Arias is very, very well-versed in all things tennis. And he talks about how he has a, a real job now. <laughs> he's, working, he's working harder than he ever has into his 50s. But Jimmy Arias is uh, well-versed in all things tennis, but also specifically American tennis, having gotten to work with some American tennis players. And that's very big for this discussion and also relevant because of all the success that some of these American tennis players have had. Jimmy breaks down the rise of Tommy Paul, how he has done some pretty good things uh, on the challenger circuit, and he was able to win a couple matches at the Australian Open. Also talking about Tennis Sangren and the physical condition that he's been in, knocking off Matteo Berrettini in a match in that tournament as well. And, of course, his thoughts on Coco Golf and what she's able to accomplish, again, winning a couple matches in a Grand Slam. It's Jimmy Arias being interviewed by John Wertheim and Brett Haber on the Tennis Channel Live podcast. We say good morning to former world number five, our Tennis Channel colleague and the director of player development at the IMG Academies, Jimmy Arias. For a guy who said that he never wanted to work a day in his life, that's, you have a lot of job titles, Jimmy. It's very strange, actually, how much I decided to take the first 54 years off, and then boom, here I go, year 55, and I'm working very hard, actually. Congratulations Thank on you. your, your gainful employment. Let, let's talk about some of the Americans, and we have to start with, with Tommy Paul, who pulled off the, the big upset against Dimitrov last night. Did, did that surprise you, or have you seen this coming from Tommy Paul? The day before yesterday, Martin Blackman, the head of USTA player development, told me Tommy Paul's the guy that he thinks is going to make the next big move for the U.S. players. And so I was curious to watch that match with Dimitrov and see, and I believe Martin Blackman has a point. The guy is, is a player. He has a lot of weapons. He moves unbelievably well. I think he was somewhat fortunate in this match as it wore on. He had a two-set-to-love lead. Obviously, Dimitrov serves for the match in the fifth set. And according to Martin Blackman, Paul was so tired by the end that the nerves are sort of gone at that point. You don't have any <laughs> adrenaline left anymore. So you're just going to start swinging away. You have to end the points quickly. And it worked for Tommy Paul and stole an amazing win. And he's Look, he's on his way. That's it's awesome to see because he was sort of in that group. Yes, he was. And he's the last one of them to to make that breakthrough. Man, that was fun stuff. I want to ask you. This is this is match point coming up here. This is a signature win for uh, for Tommy Paul. And I, th I think you're right. I mean, he was really sort of lagging behind the other players that he came up with. And uh, I don't know if you saw that afterwards. He was asked about this. He said, "You know what? Honestly, I've just never been in a position like this before. I, I got nothing for you because I got nothing to." Compare it to, man, what a it's, win. It's funny because my first great win, I had that same feeling. I was so tired <laughs> serving for the match I got that I couldn't have nerves. So is that your core coaching strategy now? Just yeah, get just so tired, tired where you don't just care Just get anymore? in a little bit okay. of good shape, but not too good. <laughs> That's how you prevent choking. I, I want to ask you about the other American who went five sets and won against a U.S. Open semifinalist. How's that for, uh, for symmetry? Uh, Tennis Sandgren beating Ten Berrettini. Yeah, Tennis Sandgren, I was told, again, by Martin Blackman and the USTA guys, that he is in the best shape of top three people in the world. Forget tennis. Best really? shape of the Physical three shape. best shape. Yes. Wow. So five sets for him is he's never lost a five-setter. Five sets to him is just another day. He probably went and ran another three or 400 miles. He can get nervous the day. in the fifth set. Um, 
And that match is a little different because they played outside. And yesterday, outside, the wind was unbelievable. And so Tennis Sanger, in the first couple of sets, what he did was just put the ball in play and run. And it was whoever hit it in <laughs> was going to be the player that wins. And then all of a sudden, the next two sets, Sangren started trying to go for more. He started trying to win points, and he started making a few errors. Fifth set, he ended up going back to that strategy of just putting the ball in play, running, 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 and it was good enough. As you can see, even overheads are tough in these conditions. I want to ask you about the, the IMG Academy, because you see the wind conditions here. And yesterday, if you, if you watch this swirl here, I mean, this is really difficult to play in. And player after player said either, I'm used to playing in the wind, no problem. You know, Heather Watson, I come from Britain, no problem playing in the wind, or else I'm not accustomed to this. I'm not accustomed to wind like this. How are the conditions in terms of the wind that you discussed? We're probably going to get it again today. How are the wind conditions at IMG Academy? It's very windy yeah. in IMG Academy. So that's Heather Watson's one that grew up at the academy. She actually went to school with my daughter. My daughter went to the academy for basketball, which seems a little strange and silly <laughs> at this point. If, she, if she you saw me, if you ever saw you? me okay. stand up, you'd know why she shouldn't have been playing basketball. But um, so, yes, at the academy, it is very windy, and it does help players that are sort of accustomed to it. I want to ask you about the academy life. We hear about players, and, and they're spending time with you, or they've left for a few weeks, or they're coming back. Can you just give us a sense of how it works when players say they're training at IMG Academy? Well, basically, we open the best facilities in the world to them. And they can bring their coach if they want. They can bring their trainers. And the facilities are incredible. So you have everything that you could ever want there. Um, and it's it's, it's a fun place for me because it's so full circle of where I started there. I was there at the very beginning. And at the beginning, it was run a little bit differently because it was virtually everybody had a scholarship. And they were trying to make great players. Nick Boltieri, Mike DePalmer, those were the two together. They were trying to make great players. So they were giving the best players, hey, just come for free, come for free. From a monetary side of things, that's not a great idea. So he wasn't doing great on that side of it. But he was producing a whole lot of players. And obviously, that one crop of Agassi, Courier, David Wheaton um, was his, his signature. Blackman. His Martin Blackman, his signature crop of guys. And they sort of want to get back to that a little bit. But at the same time, we still have to run you don't a have business. Pay. We still yeah, have to run it. a business. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, the one player you, you somehow didn't get was Coco Golf. We can have another segment on how Moritagua got to her before you guys did. But I, I assume, like most people, you're you're super high on her prospects. Um, she has something that that you can't teach, and that is remarkable speed, athletic as can be, and mentally very strong. And what she does in the matches that I've seen is. She can make errors. She can be playing badly for parts of the match. But when it matters most, she trusts her legs. So she just, I'm putting every ball in, and I'm so fast that you have to hit. you got to string together under pressure five great shots to find a way to get the ball past me and win the point. And players are finding that a little bit difficult. Osaka might be able to to still have the power to do just that, but she's on her way. Uh, thanks for stopping by, and uh, we look forward to seeing you back on Tennis Channel in February. The right. overemployed <laughs> Jimmy Arias uh, with us on TC Live from Melbourne. That's it for this week's episode of the Tennis Channel Live podcast. Big thanks again to all the hosts and guests 
from Melbourne, Brett Haber, John Wertheim, Jim Courier, Martina Navratilova, Jimmy Arias for stopping by, and Craig Tiley as well for joining the desk. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. A reminder that you can catch every episode of the Tennis Channel Live podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Tennis.com slash podcast is your home for a lot of great content that we at Tennis Channel are producing. A lot of great matches left in the Australian Open as I record this. Roger Federer just pulled off one of the greatest Houdini acts of all time, beating Millman in a 10-point tiebreaker, 10-8. He was down by a score of 8-4 in that tiebreak, wins the last six points, and wins the match. Incredible. Serena Williams loses. She's out of the tournament. Uh, Coco Golf beats Naomi Osaka, the biggest win of her young career. A lot of great matches. Make sure you catch it all on Tennis Channel Live. And check out our live coverage window as well. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the Tennis Channel Live podcast. We'll see you next week.